The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. If you're with us on the show today, you are aware that the topic this morning is investigating social media. Are you as frustrated with social media as I am? There's so much to learn, not only about how to use it, but it is a fantastic investigative tool. I'm very happy to welcome private investigator Eli Rosenblatt today. Eli has a strong background in anything to do with computers, but he's particularly interested in social media. Hi, Eli. Hey there, Francie. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on the show. You know, this... This changes daily. It's just so frustrating. But, Eli, you've been on the show before, but we probably have a lot of listeners who don't know your background. Why don't you bring everybody up to date? Sure. I have been a professional investigator since 1993. I took a handful of years off in the late 90s, early 2000s to uh, do some other things, including raise kids. Um, And since starting my practice back up in Oregon, I'm based in Portland, Oregon, I have been doing criminal defense, uh, civil, family law, and all kinds of uh, financial and workplace cases. I'm a certified fraud examiner. I'm a certified forensic interviewer, and I also hold certifications in social media stuff, which we can talk about. I also do digital forensics. I also do digital forensics on the Mac and iOS side. I'm the only uh, certified Mac and iOS digital forensic examiner outside of California. You know, Eli, I I have to say, I, I think you hold the, the record for having the most certifications of anybody <laughs> I know. <laughs> and uh, give your website, Eli, because if you're interested in Eli's certifications or the numerous articles he's written, it's all on his website. So why don't you give that website? Sure, yeah, it's elirosenblatt.com. That's E-L-I-R-O-S-E-N-B-L-A-T-T.com. And uh, thank you for the shout-out about the articles. I, I have been indebted to my colleagues at Pursuit Magazine for uh, both spurring me on and uh, helping me hone my ideas and getting that stuff out there to the world because I think it's been some good uh, some good information. It's excellent information, and I think it's timely, um, particularly on social media. You have a couple articles on there. And I have to say, I was looking at your website, snooping around yesterday, as we PIs do, and you have uh, you know pages and pages and pages of lists of um, various articles and sites under your uh, PI, your pin board. Mm-hmm. 
And so if yeah, people it's a great tool. Yeah, if uh, you sh people that if you're interested in this, this is an amazing resource of all kinds of things you want to know or have questions about social media. So on with this. Um, so how have things changed in this digital evidence world? That's a really good question. When I started doing this work uh, in the 1990s, you know, it was it was in many ways brand new for investigators. Um, most investigators that were my colleagues or that I, you know, my mentors, folks I was learning from, did things in very different ways. Um, they searched for information rarely using a computer. Um, and when they did, it was when they used computers, it was more for uh, storing, organizing, and putting together presentations mm. of information, you know, writing good reports and keeping track of records and so forth. Uh, it wasn't so much for doing research. That's transitioned to the point where now almost, you know, for, for almost all the uh, PIs that I work with, and I would say different kinds of investigators, uh, you know, both private investigators who do family law and locates and so forth uh, across the spectrum to folks in um, special investigative units, in-house at law firms, so on and so forth. Um, it's changed to the point where almost all of their research work is online. Um, it's rare... Uh, that we have to go to the public library to, the, to do research. Um, it does happen, and in fact, in a couple of recent cases, I had to go do some research into old records that were only available at the public library and only available on microfilm, microfiche, or even paper records um, mm -hmm. at the courthouse. Um, but, you know, I'm... I'm just it's astounding how that has transitioned to the point where almost all of our research work is done online these days. So that's you know, one of the major ways that things have changed. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, as you know, I, I work with criminal defense attorneys, and the other day I had a criminal defense attorney ask me if I had Googled all of the jurors. And, uh, of course, I hadn't because I didn't even know who the jurors were. But uh, as it turned out, we did do that. And it's interesting how much you can get just by Googling somebody's name if you have their approximate location. That is a great example of how things have changed in the world of, well, in litigation in general uh, and in, the, in mm -hmm. the kinds of investigative work that are done to help attorneys prepare for trial. Um, but especially when it comes to profiling jurors, uh, it's not something that a, an investigator or a paralegal would have been hired to do necessarily, except on maybe a giant case. Um, mm -hmm. But now it's routine in pretty much any kind of higher-level criminal defense case, certainly any, any uh, capital or, or murder case. Um, investigators are going to do at least a cursory profile uh, in, of the juror pool and then a more in-depth profi profile of all the seated jurors. And, of mm -hmm. course, that would include looking them up on Google to see if there's any traditional media pieces out there, um, double-checking the criminal and civil history to make sure there's no um, 
conflicts that they haven't disclosed or any uh, criminal cases that they didn't disclose uh, in their questionnaire. But then also, um, you know, when we do profiling of jurors for attorneys, my, myself and my colleagues that I bring in for cases like this, we do a complete social media background check as well. So we're looking everywhere that we think they might have a, uh, an account. We're certainly checking all the big services, all the main services, Twitter, LinkedIn, MySpace, and uh, Facebook, and a couple others. And just you know, making sure that they are not someone who has previously talked about this issue or that they're talking about it during the proceedings. Um, that's essential work that has to be factored in and budgeted for in any higher-level criminal defense case. In lower-level yeah. cases, you don't often have the opportunity to do so, unfortunately. And in fact, I've uh, been an integral part of federal cases where we have not been given the opportunity to do it um, not because of the lack of time, but because the judge has forbidden it. Uh, unfortunately, that's not across the board that um, you know they're they're seeing the value of this for attorneys. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, people listening to the show might think, uh, "Wow, maybe why would you want to invade?" That's that's what they would look at: the invade the privacy of a juror. A juror's you know serving their time. They're um, they're doing a public service, all of these good things. But the reality is there are jurors that try to get on a jury with an agenda. There mm -hmm. are juries that don't disclose maybe uh, that they had been involved in a case either earlier as a witness, maybe as a victim of the same kind of a case or all kinds of things get involved. So, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say there's two things about that. First, in the context of criminal defense, you you know the reason that we do investigations on criminal criminal defense cases are are varied, um, and many of us do them for different reasons. But one of the main reasons that we work on criminal defense cases is because we believe in the system of ensuring of doing the work to ensure that the person, no matter what they may have done, has a fair trial. Right. Because really, you know, I mean, why else? would we bother having this kind of a system if it's not to ensure that even the quote-unquote worst of the worst has the absolute best chance of getting an, a totally fair shot at it, right? Right. That's an essential component of why we do this work. And, and for me, investigating jurors is a crucial component of that because you want to make sure that there isn't that bias there. There isn't, um, you know, some prior history that makes it so that that person can't be impartial uh, or that that person hasn't been influenced along the way somehow. Um, you know, any any defendant and certainly any, any prosecutor would want to make sure that they're dealing with a, a jury that is fair and impartial. So um, there's that piece of it. I think the other important part, though, is that um, as we go through and do those investigations, we're dealing with information that is public-facing. So privacy, unless you're doing something shady, privacy is not an issue. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, you're not invading the privacy of someone when you are investigating what they have posted online in a public-facing way. Um, I'm not to 
say that you were saying that at all, but right, you know, right. it, it's uh, when you look up someone's history and their their background, um, you aren't getting information that isn't available in public records, and you aren't getting information that um, they have somehow hidden from public view. So, you know, you're just learning what they have advertised to the world. Um, so that's, I think, an important distinction and something to, exactly. to that's kind great. of that's think great about when AI. people challenge you that way. And, this, and it applies to expert witnesses that testify. It applies to wit, uh, any witness that testifies. That Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And to your client, I've got to say, that's one of the first things that we make sure when we're working with attorneys on figuring out what the what all the action steps are going to be uh, in a case that we're working, we we say you've got to run the full background on your client first. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to be prepared for what the other side is going to go looking for. And you don't want to be blindsided with information that uh, that you didn't find out about because your client assured you that there was nothing back there. And, you know, as long as we're on this uh, subject, what talk? let's talk about privacy a little bit because sure. that seems to be a big issue and and uh, uh, people think they're protected off, often on social media sites and there's ways that they're not that they're not even aware of so let's talk about that a little bit certainly yeah you know uh, I like to think of it this way I like to think of it as it, you don't want to post <laughs> for investigators certainly or any kind of professional you don't want to post anything online that you wouldn't be completely comfortable talking about on the stand. Mm -hmm. That's how I like to think about it. Right. Because even though you might have your privacy settings set to not allow anybody in the world except, you know, your mom see what you have posted, you never know who's going to repost something without your permission or inadvertently you know, repost something. A lot of what you see on social media, you don't even want your mother to see, <laughs> yeah, frankly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, I think there's a, a lot of professionals in general, but certainly a lot of professional investigators that I've worked with who use social media in a way that is very different from our colleagues in other arenas. So, you know, I have... Um, friends who are other kinds of professionals who really don't mind posting all sorts of things about their politics or about things that are going on in their workplace or their neighborhood, I would just never post anything like that. I don't want that information uh, circulating. Um, I don't want to be in a position where I'm having to explain it to anybody. I use social media myself pretty much for just updating my friends and family about my kids. <laughs> That's pretty much what it's for for me. Right. Um, right. You know, I have other ways of of sharing my news about politics and the goings on in my in my community uh, with my friends and family that are not centered around Facebook or what have you. So, um, yeah, I I I try and make that a, a hard and fast rule that to not post anything that uh, that I would need to. That I would be difficult, you know, that it would be difficult for me to talk about on the stand. Mm, sure. um, but also, I just kind of like to think of it in terms of: Do I have to post this? Is this a sense? Is you know, is there is there a reason that I can maybe take a step back and think about not posting this, whatever it happens to be? 
Like and, uh, where you had lunch it, today or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I said, uh, <laughs> this is not so important. This yeah. is not so important. I can, it can wait. <laughs> like texting and driving, it can wait. <laughs> right. So um, we, we talked a little bit offline, Eli, about how you approach privacy and um, kind of the guidelines used for yourself. So sure. why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I am a firm believer in staying really true to a set of ethical guidelines around how you do social media investigations. Um, you know, I have colleagues in law enforcement and in other arenas that do investigation in ways where they are pretexting or pretending to be somebody they're not or creating uh, profiles and accounts on social media services that are entirely made up whole cloth or that are faking, pretending to be somebody that they're actually not. Mm -hmm. um, this is a standard practice in use by pretty much, I would say, most if not all law enforcement agencies um, and many other types of investigators as well. Um, for those of us in, that do criminal defense and that do most kinds of civil investigations, it's not a practice that is, uh, well, let me just say it's frowned upon for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't want to detract from those you know, investigators that do use those techniques. Um, it, it, in fact, there's some very helpful tools. They, um, they call them sock puppets. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a practice where you create profiles uh, for fake accounts and you you, mm -hmm. you add to them and embellish them so that it appears that there's a real person behind this. Um, you know, many, uh, I heard a statistic recently about the number of Facebook accounts and I had to kind of do a little math for myself to bring that number down to account for all of the um, accounts that are out there from, that are created by various types of investigators um, that are just not real people. Well, and, it, and Eli, isn't that the way a lot of the scammers operate as well, by creating Certainly. these identities? Certainly, yeah. So it's not it's not just law enforcement; it's other types of yeah. folks as well who are who are doing this. Um, but you know, it, it's certainly a practice that is useful in certain contexts. But for those of us doing criminal defense and most kinds of civil cases, including family law and other other cases, it. It just doesn't pay. It doesn't work. Um, first of all, uh, there are ethical guidelines and, in some states, laws that prohibit it outright. Right. And certainly, in most, if not all cases, it violates the terms of service of that uh, service provider, of that right. uh, social media service. So you're going to get into some kind of hot water, most likely, uh, down the road as you try to... Um, bring whatever evidence you were able to garner as a result of that fake account or, or that pretexting, um, pretending you were somebody else that you actually aren't. Uh, you know, you're, you're pr it's the chances are too high that you're going to get into some kind of hot water if not sanctioned. Or uh, I know that there's investigators in California who've had their license suspended for this. Um, I don't have the citation on that uh, top of my head. In fact, I've been trying to find a link for to the news item from, I think it was a year and a half ago or two years, two years ago that this hit the headlines. But um, 
in addition to that, the chances are also very high that you're not going to be able to use whatever evidence you've uncovered because you were pretexting. So not only might you get in trouble, but the actual material that you were looking for, that you were trying to get, you won't be able to use because you got it this way. So we like to point out on our website that our policy basically is to... um, you know, not use any of these social engineering techniques or pretexting and to just go after material that is either publicly available, uh, public, you know, public-facing material on the web in a social media service, or that we have legitimate access to as a result of getting the credentials of a cooperating witness or a client. And uh, there are in addition, you know, there, when you're using the credentials of a witness or a client, there are some issues around privacy. There's some, some legal issues that need to be sorted out that you need to cross the T's of and dot the I's of to make sure you're doing that in the proper way with the right authorizations and so forth. But um, that can be a very useful technique. Yeah, Eli, um, I want to get into that a little bit more, but we need to take a break. More to come from private investigator Eli Rosenblatt with Social Media Investigations. Right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Joined the show, private investigator Eli Rosenblatt is discussing social media. And Eli, uh, you were just, I interrupted you. Go ahead with what you were saying. Oh, no problem. So, yeah, I just think that um, all too often the folks 
who have tried to use material that they've gotten by pretexting or by some sort of social engineering um, have found that they actually can't use that material in court uh, or in some sort of official proceeding. It's just not allowed. Um, you know, and there's pretty good guidelines set up for that kind of processing of evidence um, in the rest of the world that isn't digital, um, but mm-hmm. a lot of those rules apply to gathering digital evidence as well. And, uh, you know, it's, there are sort of a different set of rules that apply to law enforcement than to folks who are not in law enforcement. So right. there's some distinctions that need to be made there. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just the investigators that I work with myself, we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard around not pretending that we're somebody else mm-hmm. when we are investigating someone online. That goes, you know, it's just sort of echoes how we work out in the field as well. When I go knocking on someone's door to interview them, I'm not going to pretend that I'm somebody else. I'm going to introduce myself in a professional manner. I'm going to tell them about who I'm working for and what information I'm trying to get. Uh, It might take me a little while to build rapport uh, depending on the situation, and they might at first be, you know, hostile or uninterested, Mm -hmm. but um, it's worth taking the effort. I agree. And so uh, now that you brought up this idea of of presenting evidence, um, one of the first things you have to be concerned with is authenticating where you got the information, correct? Absolutely. Um, and how do you, you know, do that? Yeah. So it used to be the case in many, if not most, courts, state and federal, that a simple screenshot was sufficient um, when you were dealing with any kind of evidence regarding a blog post or um, you know what somebody said in a post on social media, any kind of any kind of evidence that was from an online source. Um, more and more often, though, that's getting to be not the case. It, there are scores of cases at all levels, state and federal, where judges and appeals courts have thrown evidence out, saying, sorry, it is just not sufficient to simply do a screenshot. Um, screenshots, I think, these days are a good way to get started if you must. Um, mm-hmm. But you need better, more thorough, more clear, more identifiable documentation than that if you're going to actually um, have evidence, digital evidence that's going to be authenticated. And it comes from the world of digital forensics. So, you know, you'd never dream of bringing uh, the original computer. Uh, as the evidence that you went in and examined. You'd always work from a copy to ensure that you're not uh, altering the original information. That's one of the standard practices in doing digital forensics. And similarly, you want to make sure that you get the uh, digital fingerprints, if you will, the the hash values, uh, that show clearly that the data that you copied to, to start analyzing was exactly the same as the original data. Um, Eli, I've got, to stop. I've got to stop you here. I have no idea what hash values are. So what are hash right, that's values? Why, that's why I said <laughs> that, uh, that what I'm talking about is digital fingerprints. You know, okay. it's like a, 
It's like a unique code that tells you, yes, this information that you copied over is exactly the same as the information that was on okay. the original device. Okay. So, um, sorry, I was trying to clarify that, but it was <laughs> my long-winded way of saying <laughs> it's the thing that says, yes, this is the same. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. It, it's... Um, you know, you would never dream of bringing evidence in uh, to court when you're pre when you're presenting this digital evidence. You'd never dream of bringing that in without showing that you had done that diligent work to ensure that it was exactly the same as the original copy. Similarly, now in many cases of social media evidence, you've got to be showing a that you weren't altering it somehow, and that in fact it was from the person you're saying actually posted it. You got to um, do the same kind of work you do with other evidence in establishing a foundation. You got to establish initially that this, in fact, was the person who was posting it and that they would have been posting it at this, you know, at such and such a time, uh, maybe even from such and such a device. So those are all pieces of information, what we call metadata, the data about the data, you know, the, the, the special little pieces of information that are behind the scenes um, that you're not going to get with a simple screenshot, with a simple, uh, you know, printout um, just from looking at what you see in your browser. You've got to well, kind of go behind the scenes. Let me ask you a question. So yeah. say I have, I have a screenshot. I've done... I've done an investigation on someone, someone, and I have a screenshot, say, off a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. And then um, the attorney I work for puts me on the witness stand and uh, just asks me questions to authenticate where I got that picture or that screenshot. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. doesn't, that, isn't that, doesn't that suffice? It might. It might suffice. But the chances these days that it won't suffice are just too high to take that gamble. You know, it's a roll of the dice. And when I'm working on a, on a criminal defense or a civil case or a family law case, I do not want to be rolling dice. <laughs> I want okay. to be making sure that I'm coming in with all my T's crossed and I's dotted. Um, you know, you, you can take a gamble that the, uh, the opposing attorney will just stipulate to that or won't have any kind of problem, or that the judge, and or that the judge will say, "Sure, that's fine," uh, and I'll take your word for it. Um, you know, your professional reputation and your licensing and your certifications might be just fine for the judge to say, "Sure, whatever this person's saying, it's likely enough to be the truth," and that may be just fine for if you're dealing with a simple set of digital evidence that, you know, is perhaps, for instance, just the, just a printout of one Facebook posting from one Facebook user. Uh -huh. That might cut it. That might be just enough for you to get up on the stand and say, yes, I printed this out. Uh, you know, I found this by searching for the person's profile and I printed it out and here it is. That might be fine. If, on the other hand, you're dealing with multiple witnesses, multiple sites, um, different things that they said uh, or that they posted at different times from different devices, you're going to start to get into hotter and hotter water if it's just your word for it. 
Um, And so that's why I like to make sure that at the very least, we've done the work to show ahead of time what the steps we took to get there were, uh, how we found out that this was that person's profile. In fact, it matches this person in real life. How, in fact, it was that we determined that this was the date that they posted that. Show, you know, just show the breadcrumbs along the trail. And say, here's, here's how we found this out. Here's why we believe this to be circumstantial evidence that matches up with what this witness is saying or what, you know, that contradicts what this witness is saying and present it that way. Now, there, you know, there are tools that one can use that are fairly simple um, for really doing good documentation, for really thoroughly documenting how it was that someone that you found out what you found out and how you, um, you know, and shed that show that you didn't, in fact, just create this on your own from Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are what are those tools, Eli? There are screen recording tools that one can download that are, uh, you know, free or relatively inexpensive. Um, there's good software for both Windows and Mac. Camtasia is one of them. C A M T A S I A. Um, Telestream uh, is a company that makes a really good one called ScreenFlow. Uh, I like that one just because of its features for recording all of the different things you're doing on your computer. Um, so those are good ways. In, in a pinch, you could just put your smartphone or your camera on a tripod and record a session of you yourself there on your computer, finding the information, loading the way page in your web browser, and, you know, uh, pointing out the date and so forth and the time and the particular information that's you're a looking really for good and idea. printing it out. Yeah, that's a really good idea. That is what some investigators have done, you know, in important cases where they need to quickly show how they got something. Mm-hmm. Um, having a, a witness, having an assistant, or maybe the attorney you're working with looking over your shoulder to document that this is indeed what happened. This is not something you created in a program like Photoshop or something. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all decent ways. They, I would say that's the technique that I would use if I were just dealing with one or two small pieces of digital evidence, you know, okay. maybe a posting or a couple of postings from one person or so forth, you know, something like that. If instead I'm dealing with multiple witnesses, multiple postings, multiple social media services that they're posting on, I'm going to want a tool that is more robust, can handle more complex searches, um, can can organize that information in a really coherent way, and crucially, that preserves that back-end metadata that shows that information about the information that you're not going to see when you're looking at the screen, and that your screenshot isn't going to produce at all. Um, so you've got to remember, screenshots are just images. They mm-hmm. don't have text inlaid with them unless you use some sort of optical character recognition tool. So, you know, if you're dealing with eight different witnesses who have 10 different social media profiles and they're each posting, you know, 20 things over the course of five days, you're going to really want a tool to keep it all organized and screenshots aren't going to cut it. Um, so there are social media investigators um, like myself and, and, and firms 
um, like ours that will help you organize all this and that will use higher end uh, tools that go into the back end of those social media services and pull that information and, and help you organize it. And crucially, help you search for you know keyword terms that you're looking for. So if you have an embezzlement case and it centers around a certain product, say the widget, um, you want to know all of the witnesses that you're dealing with who mention the widget on this date range. Um, you want to be able to have a tool that will let you search for that term and return your results immediately and be able to document that for you across all of those social media services and all of those posts. Okay. Well, okay, let me give you an example of, of uh, a question I have. Say, say um, someone forwards you on their iPhone, their cell phone, a mm -hmm. screenshot yeah. of somebody. And... Um, you take that, and you, then you go back and try to find it, and that person has taken whatever that picture is or whatever they've sent you off their Facebook page, if it's Facebook, mm -hmm. and it's gone. What do you do then? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. You want to um, first just preserve that screenshot that they gave you um, okay. and make sure that you have the date and time that it was snapped on their device. Uh, if possible, you maybe want to get a forensic examination done to ensure that you know they in fact were the one who snapped that and when they snapped it. Um, that would be one of the first steps I would take. Next would be to see if the person who originally posted it is a cooperating person, and if not, figure out if that information might still be available somewhere else online, because you know people might post something on one site and then delete it from there, but leave it on another. Uh -huh. um, barring that, you know, if that fails, you're going to want to subpoena the original device from which they posted it and have a forensic exam done on that to get the information as it was originally posted um, from the cache, if you will, the, the, the back, you know, the backlog of information mm -hmm. that that computer generated or that that tablet or phone generated. Um, or, you know, either have the forensic exam done or um, subpoena the original, you know, the service provider to have them return to you all of the posts from that person, including what was deleted. That last example I found in general practice, that's going to unfortunately be the least successful. Mm -hmm. um, law enforcement has, <laughs> the subpoena a problem. Better, yeah. Yeah. has a better track record of getting information out of the service providers than attorneys who are either in civil litigation or in criminal defense. Um, right. That said, you know, the practice that I'm working with most often is not about trying to get that information from the service providers. It's about trying to get it on the front end when it was originally posted. So if, if a witness, you know, getting back to your example, if a witness in a case or our client forwards me a screenshot of something they saw on another witness's Facebook page, mm -hmm. the first thing I'm going to do is try and get to that page myself right? so that I can grab that same image in a way that's going to be forensically sound, that's going to be documentable. I know it's not really a word, but, you know, that's going to be it's easily okay. documented. And, <laughs> and I can show, yeah, what the steps were. 
um, unfortunately, not all witnesses or clients even are that right. on top of things or that cooperative. So you're going to have to sometimes improvise. But um, time is of the essence, I would say. <laughs> All right, we've got to take another break, Eli. There's so much to talk about here. Don't go away. Eli will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm so interested in talking about the social media topic with private investigator who has become a specialist in investigating social media. Actually, he tells me by accident, Eli Rosenblatt. Eli, um, wh- let's go back a little bit because one of the things that I, I think is important that you were saying um, or alluding to is as you go through this process, you have to catalog every step, don't you? You really do. And uh, you know, if you don't, you run a certain risk of uh, opposing attorney or, you know, opposing party or a judge coming back and saying, okay, well, how do we know for certain that this information wasn't simply created in, uh, you know, a web tool or, you know, in a, in, a, in a website creation tool or in Photoshop or what have you? There are so many easy ways these days to cut and paste and to basically fabricate uh-huh. information um, to make it look authentic, um, you've got to take certain steps to ensure that you're not, uh, that this isn't something just made up or, you, you know, you just got from somebody who made it up. Sure. And then 
uh, and then what do you do to once you have it so so you've done all your research you've you've documented every step of the way and now mm-hmm. you need to preserve it to take it to court how do you do that well you know that that's a great question that is hard to answer uh across the board but it because it really depends on the type of case and the type of proceeding. So, you know, if I'm working with an attorney on a murder case, for instance, and we have just one witness um, who has posted a couple of important things that we want to capture, I will probably just print those to a PDF uh, and paper and put them in our witness binder for that particular witness um, and probably have just a brief uh, memo to the file or a confidential work product that outlines what the steps were that I took to get that information, mm. you know, that, that, does, that, that documents the breadcrumb trail, if you will, um, and put that right in front of it just to, uh, you know, orient the attorney um, and use, the, use just that PDF if we're doing it if we're presenting it in court on a screen or use just that piece of paper, if we're using paper, because you never really know for sure. You've got to be ready for both really, you know, paper and putting something up on a big screen just in case the attorney's going to want one or the other. Um, and that's, I would probably leave it at that. On the other hand, um, if I've got a big civil case with a lot of different players and we're trying to show the relationships between those different people in the workplace, for instance, mm-hmm. or we're trying to show the progression from one set of postings to another set or comments on those posts, you're going to need a tool that is more uh, complex, that, that shows those relationships in a more graphic way than simply a, you know, a single-page PDF or a printout on on a piece of paper. You're going to need something that's more like a flowchart or a, a timeline. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's some good applications for that, both on the Windows side and the Mac side, that will let you graphically show, um, you know, information as it has changed from one time to the next and as it's morphed from one witness to the next. Um, there's some good presentation tools. You can you can do, you know, you can do things that present information like that in good ways, both in PowerPoint uh, on the Windows side and, and uh, Keynote on the Mac side, um, okay. or other third-party tools like Haiku or uh, Prezi. You know, there's, there's things that you can do on the web that will allow you to show this information in really graphic ways. Um, I, I recommend sitting down ahead of time with your attorney that you're working for or, or the company you're working for and establishing who the people are that, you know, who the witnesses are that you're going to need to do this with and what the parameters are and how to best present that information. Cause there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many different ways it can be, can be shown. And, and uh, you really want to, you want to do the, you want to choose a way that's going to have a lot of impact, but not overwhelm your jury or, or the, you know, the other side that you're presenting to. And do you find, Eli, that uh, attorneys are unrealistic uh, about what can be obtained and what uh, what you can do? 
oh no, all the everyone I work with knows exactly what what's available out there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. All right. I, I have to. I'm laughing just because that's it, it's something I run into all the time. Even even colleagues who I would think that would really understand how these things work are lost in the in the CSI effect. You know, it's, yeah. it's a yeah. it's a well documented phenomenon, unfortunately, that yeah. that even I fall prey to sometimes. Um, you know, we just have this notion that's become such an integral part of the popular culture of the popular media. Yeah, yeah. That we should be able to zoom and enhance right. <laughs> that image and get so much more detail out of it, and that just isn't the case. Yeah. You know, that, that we should be able to find exactly what this person. Um, posted three years ago on some site right. that doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore and who their third cousin was. You know what? I mean, just like yeah. there are certain expectations that unfortunately too many of the attorneys and other folks I work with have um, where, you know, it's a black box. They ask for certain information. They want the information out the other side of the black box. They don't really <laughs> care or in many times need to know what happens inside that box to get the information. <laughs> So um, yeah, unfortunately, I find that I find that phenomenon to be happening all too often. So, um, so I have a question about tagging. So, so somebody has their privacy set. Again, we're talking about Facebook. I mean, that's yeah, what sure. everybody's using. But um, they have their privacy settings all set up, and yet, um, because of something they've done, and I'm wondering if it's tagging. Uh, other people that uh, their information isn't as private as they thought it was. Absolutely, that's a that's a well documented and and highly debated, hotly debated topic right now in social media and social media investigations. Um, first of all, the privacy settings on Facebook and and many other sites as well, but certainly Facebook are changing so frequently and so quickly that it's hard for users to, well, hard for users on their end, but investigators on our end as well, to keep abreast of, um, you know, keep up to date of what the information is that will be available publicly and what is hidden when you have certain settings set. Um, And, you know, you're going to find that you might set it up in a way that is private enough for you at one point and then discover later that information you thought was private is no longer private. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a, it's a game of cat and mouse um, going to look and see if the information you posted was something that you were comfortable being put out there. Um, so that's, you know, for the for the user from the user's perspective, it's frustrating and disorienting and difficult to make sure that you are not posting things you don't want to have be publicly available. Um, but for the investigator's perspective, it's kind of a process of trying to see what is now available that might not have previously been available, or how to follow a more circuitous route to find information about somebody or that somebody has posted um, through other people that they are connected to. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 it's, and it's that process of tagging others, say, in a photograph that actually mm-hmm. 
allows it to leak out into other locations. That's a great point. And when you were talking about leaking before, that's what I, I was thinking of is that, yeah, you might be tagged in a photo by a, a different user who they themselves or you have certain restrictions set up uh, mm -hmm. in your privacy settings to so make it mm -hmm. so that otherwise you wouldn't be able to see that image or the comments on that image. But for that tagging feature, it, you know, depending on the settings, it might enable that photo to be publicly available or to be available to uh, connected people, friends or whoever that um, you didn't think it was showing up with. So that's, that's part of why I talked earlier about the importance of working with um, a, co a cooperating witness because you yourself with your own investigator account on Facebook or another service might not be able to see information about your about the witness you're investigating, um, but a cooperating witness might, and you would have to get mm. that information through them. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, so I can't imagine how this would work, but are there any, what are the chain of custody issues? Well, I would say there, you know, when you do your documentation of the steps you took, um, it's usually pretty safe because in the cases that I've worked on anyway, uh, the chain of custody has been pretty clear and pretty safe because it's, it's pretty much one step from me as the investigator, an extension of the attorney's office to the attorney. Mm -hmm. um, the other, the example that you talked about earlier with the witness um, sending you a screenshot, that's going to be where chain of custody is a little more difficult to establish and mm -hmm. more, there's going to be more that you're going to want to do to document that chain of custody. So, you know, you might need to bring that witness in and document what their device was that they took that screenshot on. So, you know, okay. the serial number of that iPad or, you know, the, mm -hmm. the serial number of that iPhone or what have you. Um, and when they took it, you're going to want to document that and then how they transferred it to you, you know, show the date and time of the text message where they, the SMS message where they forwarded you that, that image um, yeah, so in those cases, it's going to be the chain of custody is going to be more like the chain of custody work that you would do with physical evidence, um, you know, a shirt with blood on it or, um, right. you know, a, a, a document, a, an original of a receipt or something. Um, it, the, you're going to that said, I think it's important to scrutinize the chain of custody on the other side as well. And. and not all the attorneys or other folks I work with always see the benefit of this, of doing the extra mm -hmm. work to follow up on these things. But when, mm -hmm. when we do, I think it can be valuable. You want to scrutinize what the other side has done to preserve that chain of custody uh, for all kinds of evidence, but it's indeed also a digital evidence to make sure that that evidence didn't, you know, wasn't, generated somewhere initially that you didn't know about or wasn't handled by someone that you can't vouch for. Right. Now, um, 
another thing comes to mind, and we're almost at the end of our show here, but I've got to ask this question. What if that yes. same, instead of a screenshot, it was a video that was taken from a given uh, Facebook page? Now, that's a great question because, it, you know, like photos, I mean, that could go, go for photos as well, photos and videos that are posted to Facebook and some other social media services, but certainly not all, have the important metadata about them, where they were taken, what device they were originally used to, you know, was used to take it, stripped out before they're actually uploaded, as they're being uploaded to Facebook. Okay. Um, so you're going to want to try and track down the original place where that video was taken. Um, okay. In the case of YouTube, that might not be too hard, um, because if right. somebody posts something, um, there may be a pretty good breadcrumb trail that will help you determine who the original person was that took the video. But then, you, you know, then it's just a, it's the kind of on the ground, you know, boots on the ground investigative work that we've done for years right. in tracking people down in doing good interviews in exactly. locating evidence. And, you know, you're kind of melding the, the digital and uh, non-digital worlds there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've had cases certainly just like that where yeah. the evidence that they've that the witnesses presented us with didn't do us a whole lot of good because all that important metadata was stripped out, and we have to you know follow the trail back to try and figure out who it was that originally took that video or that photo, and see if we can get the device you know either by having them cooperate or by subpoena. Right. Um, right. get the device itself um, to do an exam on, a forensic right. exam, and have it show, come that way. Yeah, Eli, we are into the hour. We're, we, there's so much here. It's just a great show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to chat with you about investigating social media. And thank you, listeners. If uh, Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories, just like uh, private investigator Eli Rosenblatt from Real Investigators, this PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for having me, Francie. Thank you. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.